Welcome to Agents of Everything, episode 11. This is the Duma Optimism episode. I said, Davy, don't you think that it's strange? While you were sleeping, how the world went and changed. That's a line from the song, David, by the artist Passenger. I've included it here because it was going around my head before sitting down to record this podcast, and it occurred to me that I'd like to use it as the subtitle. So the subtitle of this is While You Were Sleeping, How the World Went and Changed. This is what we're going to be talking about right here. We're talking about change. Change is happening. Change is always inevitable. Nothing is permanent but change. I believe Heraclitus, the pre-Socratic philosopher, said this. Right now, we are in the middle of huge change, in case you hadn't noticed. There's a lot going on. You would be forgiven for thinking there was a lot more volatility in the world than perhaps there has been uh, during your lifetime up until recent years. And I think that will be a fair enough observation. Maybe we're skewed in our observation, but I think it will be a fair enough observation. The world is changing. There's a lot of stuff going on. And the question is, how are we going to meet that? How are we going to dance with that? How are we going to create with that? That's something that's always of interest to me, creating with what comes up. So what is going on in the world? It seems that we have a lot more geopolitical volatility than we've had for a while. There's the analyst, Peter Zihan. He's been on a lot of podcasts recently. And his book, The End of the World is Just the Beginning, very interesting read. Okay, he's predicting big changes. He's predicting the end of the global world order, i.e. breakdown of supply chains, massive deindustrialization. We've got this coming along. Some people will point out that right here, right now, I believe the world has just had its hottest month. Some people would dismiss that and say, well, that's just propaganda and all of this. I think there's definitely something going on with regards to climate change. That seems apparent to me. And I suspect when people are arguing about the causes of these things, they're missing the fact that it's a complex system. There is no linear cause and effect chain. A lot of things feed into this. But the fact is, things are changing in this department. We've got the rise of AI. Okay, AI is coming up. It's a huge disruptor, not just in terms of jobs and this kind of thing, but in terms of how we live our lives, how we engage with the world. I'm already seeing out there. I use Midjourney to create my thumbnails now here on Agents of Everything. I'm seeing a lot of Midjourney art out there in the world. Okay, so the world is changing. Things that were certain for many, many years are no longer certain. But what does this mean to us and how do we meet this? And as I say, how do we create with this? Now, to start off, I'm using the title Doomer Optimism here. And Doomer Optimism, this is a phrase I heard a couple of years ago. It really struck me. There was something I liked about it. And I'd never heard the term before, but immediately I thought, that's me. I'm a Doomer Optimist, right? And the reason I thought that fitted me is because many, many years ago, I used to be quite a cynical, bleak person. I used to see the world as just problems, obstacles, difficulties. Everything was wrong, and I really wished that it would be a different way. But of course, and I've mentioned this before, I had this realization moment, the world is not going to reorganize itself to suit my needs. So I started transforming myself to be more adapted to meet the world, right? And create with the world in spite of how it was, in spite of how it is. Okay. Now that didn't mean that I started to connect to positive thinking, happy, happy, all of this kind of thing, right? I'm actually a pretty positive guy because I think whatever comes my way, I'll handle it. I'll create with it. This is part of my personal philosophy of life. Whatever comes my way, I will create with it. This is something that in a sense, it's very much aligned with and was very much enhanced by my experience doing impro theater. When you're doing impro theater, you're improvising with other people. They're not going to hand you the material you would love to have. You might have an idea in your mind about where this scene could go or should go, where would be a great place for this scene to go. But you can't rely on the other people to hand you the material to take the scene in that direction. So you have to create with whatever they give you. You have to accept every offer. And this gives you a very live, dynamic way of engaging. It's the only way you can improvise when creating impro theater. I would argue it's actually the only way you can really do life, particularly in the kind of complex, volatile times we're entering right now. And they are complex and they are volatile and crazy stuff is going down. Who knows what's around the corner? 
Something Nassim Nicholas Taleb has said is there's only one lesson to learn from history, and that's that nobody knows what's going to happen next, right? And I think we're really entering a time when that could be the case. I don't know anyone listening to this has been paying attention to this whistleblower, talking about the fact that apparently the US has alien spacecraft. This is being discussed in the Senate at the moment. Forgive me if I've got this wrong. I'm not a US citizen. I don't fully understand the US political system. But there's an inquiry into this. There's a whistleblower. There are claims being made, and they seem to have a fair degree of credibility that alien spacecraft have been discovered. Alien organisms have been discovered. I'm not saying this is true. I'm not saying this is not true, right? It's difficult to know in the world these days uh, what might be quote-unquote true and what might not be true. But nonetheless, is that not strange? Are we not in strange times where this stuff is really probably more so than ever being held up as being actually, maybe this is the case. What kind of a game changer would that be, right? What kind of ontological shock would that have upon the global psyche were that to be the case? So we're entering volatile times, strange times, weird times, and we don't know what's going to happen next. So this has always been something that I've had a sense for, for myself. Maybe that's why I'm seeing it more than ever. It's grown more than ever. And I've had a private mantra that I've carried with me that a lot of people have said to me when I've shared this with them over the years, they go, man, James, that's pretty bleak. I'm like, it's not bleak, right? My private mantra is this. I walk through the shit storm at the end of time, right? Some people hear that they go, that's really bleak. The end of time. What does that mean? Right. It's not bleak to me. I'll explain why it's not bleak to me and why I would consider myself a true doomer optimist in the sense, more so than perhaps the person that coined this term. And that's one of the things I want to get into. A guy called Tucker Max. We'll get to that. So um, I walked through the shitstorm at the end of time. So I've often seen that as my job to walk through that storm, not get swept up by it, not get carried away by it, not get torn out of my base by it, to walk through it. When I walk, I am in my agency. I am in my choice. One foot in front of the other. I get to choose how I walk through that. Now, it's not a perfect metaphor. It's just an internal orienting metaphor that I've held for a long time. In other places, I talk about this. I teach this idea of how we create our being from the inside out, our ground of being. So that was part of creating my ground of being because I used to be a person that would get into panics or get caught up in flaps about unanticipated, surprising things that were not going according to my desires or demands. Um, okay, so that wasn't working out for me. So in a sense, that's very much a kind of doomer optimist statement. Now, let's talk about this phrase before we go on, doomer optimism. I don't know if this is the absolute origin of this, but this is the thing that sort of kicked this off a bit virally. I'm looking at it right now on my laptop, December 29th, 2021 on Tucker Mac's website. There's a blog post here, Doom Optimism, what I see coming and how I'm preparing. What I see coming and how I'm preparing. This is something I really want to talk about in this episode. Preparing for things versus living life. Okay, we're going to come back to that. Preparing for things versus living life. What, uh, what he's basically saying here is that he thinks that life as we know it is going to unravel. He's probably very much in alignment with what Peter C. Ham would say. We're going to get a loss of the global order. That means a breakdown of global supply chains. This means the era of cheap, easy stuff uh, and everybody being able to basically, to a certain degree, share in the wealth of the world. That era is coming to an end. I'll just say something about this because different people from different political orientations will probably see this differently. Some people will see a world full of inequalities. Of course, there is a world full of inequalities. There's always a world full of inequalities. But those inequalities across the kind of globalist era have diminished somewhat. Okay, there has been the opportunity for a lot of developing nations to increase their wealth. And of course, we can look at that and go, well, they're still being paid very poorly. There's a lot of debates about this, but I think in aggregate, we could look at the global era as being flawed, but actually quite successful in elevating a lot more people out of absolute poverty, okay? And also spreading 
the goods around the world, making sure that wherever anybody is, they have got access to uh, good things. Okay, the cargo, as it might be called by Jared Diamond, a reference to his book, Guns, Germs, and Steel. Now, uh, Peter Zian, or Zion, said E-I-H-A-M. He's a geopolitical analyst. He says this is basically coming to an end, according to his beliefs or his analysis. And I think it's an incomplete analysis. Peter Zian's a very interesting guy in that he speaks with real authority. And he clearly is a very smart guy and a very educated and switched on guy, but I think he misses some parts of the picture. And he speaks as if he can predict what's going to happen um, within complex systems. And nobody gets to predict. Nassim Nicholas Taleb, once again, whatever's going to happen, we don't know. The only lesson from history is that nobody knows what's happening next. I'll just make an aside here. Peter Zihan, his mentor, wrote a book, I believe, in the early 90s, saying why it was inevitable that the US and Japan would go to war before the end of the decade. Obviously, the US and Japan never went to war. That never happened. So it shows that geopolitical analysis, these kind of predictions, you know, they're another kind of crystal ball in some ways. They might be a very educated and informed kind of crystal ball, but it doesn't mean that they can be relied upon. Now, I'm only saying that because... Uh, I want to talk about Tucker Max here, actually, more than Peter Zion, but I think Tucker Max would be very much on board with this idea that essentially Western civilization, as we know it, is going to end, wind down, change. What does this mean? Well, Peter Zian says the end of the world is just the beginning. And if we look back in history, one of the things that we can see from history is that all civilizations fall. And there is a period after the fall of civilizations. You know, there's the Bronze Age collapse, followed by a Dark Ages, and then later we see the collapse of the Roman Empire. And if you look at the change in Europe after the collapse of the Roman Empire, you see a period where life completely changed. Things became more simple again. The level of complexity dropped. And some people say, well, this is an inevitability. A certain level of complexity rises. And that particular phase moves through, and then you get a period of less complexity. The pendulum swings back, the law of rhythm, this might be for those who are fans of the pseudo-hermetic philosophy of the Kybalium, right? Now, I just want to say something about this. It all sounds very dramatic, doesn't it, when you hear about the collapse of a civilization and a dark ages afterwards. But really, I want to point out that when things are looked at that way, there's a lot of value judgment being placed on that, right? Did Rome really collapse? I think if you look at the winding down of Rome, and I'm no historian, it was a bit less dramatic than the word collapse might suggest, okay? So really, we're looking at a phase shift, a transition. We can call it a collapse, but we're ladening it with value. That's a very semantically packed term. And then we look afterwards at a period of greater simplicity and we go, well, that's the dark ages. Okay. Were they dark? Were they really dark? You know, did the sun not shine quite so brightly during those ages? I don't think that was the case. I think the sun carried on shining quite brightly and people figured out different ways of living in the world and being in the world and the world moved on. So I think these words collapse, dark ages, these sorts of things, very dramatic. So are we facing something that somebody might look back in history and say, well, there's a collapse, there was a dark ages. I don't know, but I think we are in a period of rapid transition and we are definitely in a period of increased volatility and our ability to make predictions, I think is hugely diminished. Something that Peter Zihan or Zion is not necessarily, um, at least doesn't seem to display too much cognizance of. The fact that prediction is difficult. So Tucker Max, he's the Doomer Optimist guy, and I really had my mind captured by this when I first encountered this. But actually, when I read through his post and I heard what he has to say, I actually thought that it was more just Doomerism than Doomer Optimism. His optimism didn't seem to be too optimistic. 
you know, seem to boil down to the idea that we've got to hunker down and prep and get ready and this kind of thing. And there's this real talk about being prepared. And I'm not sure about this, right? It seems like a pessimistic thing with a kind of optimistic tag on the end. Like, yeah, if we're really well prepared, like we could possibly even have a life that might even be better than the life that we've got. Okay, that's a kind of optimistic thing. But there's still this idea of preparing, this sort of bunker mentality, this kind of hunkering down thing. Okay, there's uh, a summary of it here, basically, that you could get in a quote from Tucker Max. There are no more safe places, only safe people. And the only way to be around safe people is to first become one. If you look at that, I'm very much interested in how concepts shape people's consciousness. If you look at that, what are the key operational concepts inside of this? There are no more safe places, only safe people. And the only way to be around safe people is to first become one. Safety, safety, safety. We can see a consciousness organized here, at least in part in terms of safety versus threat, right? Safety versus threat. There's no sign of opportunity here. There's no sign of that idea from impro theater of being able to create with what's given to you, right? This is all about safety and threat. Okay, survival-based stuff. No real mention of thriving. That's what I mean. To me, the Doomer Optimism take of Tucker Max is a more survivalist one with a sort of, and we could possibly even thrive, tagged onto the end. I'm really interested in thriving, right? Always thriving, not just surviving, right? And of course, pragmatically, reasonably, we have to survive in order to thrive. But I don't think necessarily that they are separated out. We can thrive in challenging, changing circumstances. And this is something that I'm very interested in, thriving in challenging, changing circumstances. So first of all, maybe I'm less of a doomer optimist than an optimistic doomer. In fact, I would say I'm not even optimistic. Because to me, optimism implies a sort of hope, right? I'm optimistic. I'm going to look at the world. And do you know what? I think it's all going to pan out okay. Well, where am I inside of that? Where's my agency, right? And I use me as a stand-in for all of us here. Although I can't say that other people should make the choices I make. But like optimism, in a sense, is a sort of denial of agency, Right? Why do we have to be optimistic? If we can truly create with whatever comes our way, we don't need to be optimistic about the circumstances. We just need to have a knowing, a ground of being that says, whatever comes my way, I'll handle it. I'll create with it. Right? I'll find that piece of gold in whatever it is. Right? I'll find how I can use this. Okay. I've often said I'm a sort of small-scale microcosmic disaster capitalist. Now, if you don't know what disaster capitalism is, disaster capitalism is, it's based in the idea that there's always money to be made where there's turbulence. In the UK, there's a Yorkshire expression that goes, where there's muck, there's brass, right? Where there's dirt, where there's filth, there's money to be made. Disaster capitalism is a sort of scaling up of this. And it's a recognition that whenever there's disaster, catastrophe, unforeseen things, the people that know how to hedge this can make money off it, right? There's opportunity within it to make money off it. And you see this during the pandemic, by the way. You look at the massive increase in wealth by a small number of people across the pandemic and you go, hmm, disaster capitalism at play. You see it even after the global financial crisis, right? Some people got really, really rich off that. So disaster capitalism is the mind of looking at disasters and thinking, how can I profit from them? Now, some people might look at that and go, but that's morally reprehensible. I see that side of things, right? It galls me when lots of people go through difficult times and some small number of people profit from that. My primate sense of fairness doesn't like that. But on the flip side of that, I can step away from that and go, actually, what if everybody kind of embodied that mentality within themselves, okay? I, whatever disaster happens, I immediately go to the place of, how can I profit from this? Now, when I say profit here on a personal level, I'm not necessarily talking about financial profit, right? I'm just talking about benefiting. How can I turn what's happening here to my benefit? How can I find the brass in the muck, 
so to speak. Right, so I often see myself as a sort of disaster capitalist on a small level. If catastrophe comes up, I want to be walking into that going, what can I create with this? Right? What are the upsides of this? The truth of the matter is nothing good or bad ever happens in life. It's just that we often have very rigid scripts in our minds about how things should or shouldn't be. And if we have a rigid script in our mind that things should or shouldn't be a certain way and the world decides to unfold it differently, and then we end up in an argument with reality, well, the fact of the matter is, is reality is going to win. But if we change our inner script to be able to embrace and utilize what happens, we are in a position to continue to create forward. And this is what I would advocate hugely. Agents of everything is about having agency, or it's about being an agent in the world. It's not claiming to have control over everything. Absolutely not. We are agents. Yes, we have agency, but we have agency in a world full of other agents who also have agency. Now, I would not advocate getting into some kind of power struggle with other agents to try and get power over them and therefore control them. That isn't necessarily a workable thing. You know, even if we were to succeed in that, we would live a life of struggle. And is that really a thing that is good? That's a different philosophical question. But we want to be able to be agents. We want to be able to engage with a world that is changing. A part of this is having the mindset that sees yourself as being able to be a creator with whatever comes your way, right? I just want to share a quote with you here. This is one that's come back to me. I pulled this book off my bookshelf. I bought this book years ago. It's the Barefoot Doctor's Handbook for the Urban Warrior, a spiritual survival guide. Now, I think I bought this book when I was in my early 20s, and uh, I'm 50 this year, 50 in a couple of months. So a long time ago, nearly 30 years ago. And I bought it because somebody told me it was basically a book on Taoism and Qigong, but updated for what was the 20th century at the time. So I thought this is great. And I got this book and I started to try and read it and I absolutely hated it. I thought it was all a bit trying to be too cool. And I don't know, I just really judged it. But years later, I picked it up again and I was reading it through and I suspended my judgment. I found that actually had some really good stuff inside of it. And there's a really nice piece right up in the introduction that I highlighted. And it's been talking about how the world is going crazy and going nuts. And this book was written back in, I don't know, the 1990s or something. So I'll read the extended piece of this. It says here, more than 2,000 years ago, the Hopi Indians prophesied that there would be a time when people would communicate verbally through cobwebs in the sky and build a platform in space. At this time, they predicted that life would be totally nuts. The weather would become erratic, society would become insane, resources would become scarce, the ground would become unstable, and the life-giving sun would become our enemy. The conclusion of the prophecy is too dread to mention. Suffice to say that the patient, brackets, life on earth, close brackets, has arrived at this time in this state, and the prognosis isn't so good. Okay, so that's the setup for this. This wasn't the quote that I wanted to share, but it's the setup. But isn't it interesting reading that, that that was written in the 1990s? And I don't know about you, but when I look back to the 1990s, it seems like an era of bliss and peace and stability. But I'm aware that I'm looking at that through my biased perceptual filters. So that's not necessarily an accurate observation. So here's the quote that I actually wanted to share. It goes on to say, now you have a choice. You can partially or totally ignore the situation for a short while longer. You can become immobilized with fear. Or you can be an urban warrior and groove on the greatest, most spectacular, tragicomic science fiction drama ever enacted on this planet until the lights go out. And that's what this handbook is here to help you do. Now, I really like this. Ignore that lights go out. There ain't no lights going out. I mean, there's lights going out metaphorically for each one of us individually, but that has always been true throughout history and prehistory and will always be true, right? We're always personally in this manifestation of this life, whatever your beliefs are, 
on a finite timeline, right? There's always a finite timeline. I think it's Byron Katie that said, you know, if you fall out of an aircraft, there's a conclusion to that journey, to that event. But there's a whole array of possibility in terms of your experience on the way down, right? So yes, of course, there's a finite line for each and every one of us. And that's always true, regardless of whatever's going on in the world, regardless of what kind of turbulence. But for us as a species, okay, maybe there's a lights out time. I don't think that's coming that soon, okay? I think we're just going to have radical changes, all sorts of upheavals, all sorts of stuff's going to happen. But I really like this frame, right? Groove on the greatest, most spectacular, tragicomic science fiction drama ever enacted on this planet. I love that. I would advocate people think deeply about that. If they look at the world and they go, oh my goodness, here comes AI, here comes aliens, here comes the hottest months on record and everything catching fire and here comes this, here comes that. What kind of movies do you watch? What makes a movie interesting? What hooks human beings into movies or stories or anything like that? What hooks them in, right? What hooks them in is stuff happening. Not blandness, not peace, not calm, not tranquility. I know we all crave that at points in our life. I value that. I value peace. I value tranquility. But I also recognize I'm not going to watch a movie that's all about peace and tranquility. I'm going to watch a movie that's about challenge, overcoming challenge, creative adaptive solutions, this kind of thing. This is what I'm going to end up being pulled into in a movie. Now, for me, that might be something like a bit more sci-fi. I like that kind of thing. Even people that like, you know, romantic comedies or whatever, there's challenges, there's stuff to overcome. That's what exists in story and narrative. That's what pulls the human mind in. Why? Because that's something about who we are. Is it really true? So going back to Tucker Max and his doomer optimism, and his focus here on safety, is it really true that we are most alive when we are most safe? Is that really true? Is it really true that we are most fully in our vibrant, awesome, wonderful potential when we are most safe? Is that really true? Or is it in fact true that life becomes life as a result of the challenge of creating with what comes our way? But if so, this period of transition offers for us, I would say, a potential to live life even more richly, even more fully. Now, I know in order to do this, there's some adjustments for a lot of people that need to be made. And one of those adjustments, I would suggest, is the transcendence of reacting to fear and threats all the time. In the last episode of Agents of Everything, I talked about fear. For me, transcending fear so that we can live in a truly creative way is really important. We cannot create from a place of fear. I would say right now we are fully charged. If we wish to thrive and live in the world vibrantly, we are fully charged with living in the world adaptively and creatively, right? Fear stops us doing this. And this is why I don't like Tucker Max Doomer optimism thing, which it's got this safety thing, safety threat, right? It's all about threat and threat response. I can't see that we could live creatively from a place like that. And I don't think that Tucker Max necessarily is. This might be unfair on Tucker Max. Maybe this will get back to him somehow and he'll come in and challenge me on it. That would be fantastic. We could have a conversation. But what he seems to be saying is, here's my take on what's coming and here's how I have prepared. Right? Is preparation the same as creative engagement? I don't know. There's a question here and I think it's a significant question. Now, one of the reasons I'm making this podcast today is because I started the day with a conversation with my wife around some of these things. I've been intending to do this episode for some time. I'm looking up at my whiteboard now. I'm seeing it written on the whiteboard, Doomer Optimism, Agents of Everything. But I wanted to talk about it in this episode because this morning I started the day with this conversation about preparing versus living. Preparing versus living. If there's a lot of change coming, how much should we be preparing for that change, readying ourselves in some ways? And how much should we just go, do you know what? I'm going to live my life, right? If I spend my whole life preparing for things that may or may not happen, when did I spend my life living? 
Okay. So I'm not sure that living endlessly in preparation for something that may or may not happen is a good idea. But on the flip side of that, I am also aware that I personally have spent a lot of my life preparing for things, preparing myself, readying myself, upgrading my skill set, right? Transforming my own attitude and consciousness in the world so I'm more able to create good things with whatever comes my way. That didn't happen without some kind of mentality for preparation. I am also aware, speaking for myself, and I often do this in this podcast, I'm sharing things that are personal to me, insights, but I hope that they're going to be useful for other people. You know, I spent a huge amount of my life thinking that I was not fit for purpose, right? And you might say, what purpose? Well, the purpose of living a good life. I didn't think I was fit for the purpose of living a good life. I spent a lot of my life acquiring skills. So I acquired lots of skills of self-repatterning, what you could call personal alchemy, self-transformation from the inside out. I developed a lot of social and communication skills. I really went deep into that stuff so that I would be a better speaker, a better communicator, therefore better able to move the minds of others, right? To whatever end I didn't know, I just felt deficient. So I wanted to make up for that deficiency. And then I started to develop skills in professional areas as well, so that I could make money more effectively in the world. A lot of professional skills. And at some point, I recognized, this was a few years ago, that I was caught in a habit of development, caught in a habit of self-development. Now, it's kind of ironic, I guess, that I'm talking about this because a lot of people who listen to Agents of Everything, some people listen just out of interest. But a lot of people who listen are interested in self-development. They're interested in transforming themselves and developing skills, all of these kind of things. The whole premise of it, agents of everything, it's about upping our agency. That doesn't happen by accident. It happens because you make a commitment to upping your agency, your personal power, and you start putting time in developing what you need to develop, right? So for me, I got caught up in this for a long time. And I hit a point about, I don't know, maybe 10 years ago or so, between five and 10 years ago, or maybe it wasn't a point, but it was uh, a slow emergence where I realized that I was spending my time preparing for a life. And what if I just started creating that life right now? What if I just started living that life right now, rather than thinking I had to get myself ready for it? What if I just started living it? You know, and I started to shift my mentality at that point. Now, I'm still a big fan of learning. I'm still a big fan of development. I learn endlessly. It's the thing I love doing. I'm an explorer, so I enjoy it. I still develop my skills a lot. At the moment, I'm, you know, and I have been since I was in my 20s, so I'm very much into martial arts. I develop martial arts skills. At the moment, I'm doing wrestling, boxing, and baguashang, Chinese martial art, right? And I'm looking at the intersections between those three. And I have a particular interest as a result of this in also what's called combative stuff. And this is about being able to deal with unexpected violence should it come your way in life, right? Now, here's a question. Am I preparing for that? I'm not preparing for that. Do I think unexpected violence is coming my way? I actually do not anticipate it. Of course, I would never rule that possibility out, but I'm not there living in some kind of violence is coming and I need to prepare. I'm not doing that. So I am developing skills in this area, but not because of any sense that I feel what's coming and I need to be ready, right? So why do I develop those skills in that area? Because I'm fascinated by them. I value them, right? For whatever reason, it's not an intellectual thing. For some reason, I'm drawn to that. So what I get to do in this situation is I actually get to live my life, right? Because I'm living my life by exploring something that I love, but it's also developing me and growing me. But it's not the same as preparing. Preparing is I've got to do this because I need to be ready for this thing that's going to happen, right? It prepares you, but it's not prepping. Now, the reason I was having this conversation with my wife this morning is because I was talking about a friend of mine who has a farm now. And he was a city boy before he had a farm, but he's had success in his business and he's able to buy a small farm. And he spends his time on the farm and he enjoys being on the farm. 
And there's been certain challenges about being on a farm, which have been difficult for him. And one of the things is in bringing himself into alignment with being a farmer, there are certain things he had to do that he was avoiding doing for a long time. And one of these things was killing chickens, right? There'll be some vegans, vegetarians on here who'll be outraged by this. And uh, I understand your perspective, but I would also invite you to step back and recognize that human beings have been doing this for a long time. This is a very different thing from factory farming, but that's a contentious thing. I'm sure that's a whole other debate, but you know, his decision was that he had to become the person that could do that. Not because he was going to necessarily do it a lot, but it was important to him to be the person that could do it should it need to be done. So he did it right now. There's a, there's a question here. Did it need to be done? at that moment? Did it need to be done by him? In a sense, by him going, I'm going to do this so that I can know that I am the person that can do this. And that's a prepping kind of a thing. I'm becoming the person who can, should I need to. Now I was discussing this with my wife this morning and she was saying, well, you don't need to do that because should you need to do it, you will do it, right? Should you really have to do it? Should you really need to do it? You'll do it then. And the example came up this might seem off topic and maybe it is, who knows, but we meander where we do. A few days ago, or maybe a week ago now, there'd been a lot of rain happening and we live in the city of Edinburgh. Now, if you live in a city, it's unfortunate, but true. There are rats about, there are always rats about. So down in the basement of the block that we live in, there's rats from time to time. We've done our best to get rid of them, to seal up all the gaps they might move through. And we thought that we'd done a pretty good job, but there's a bucket down in the yard. And there was some heavy rain and the bucket filled up with water. And then my wife went out one morning to take the dog out and hadn't been paying attention to this bucket. So we don't know how long it had been there, but there were quite a lot of dead rats drowned in the bucket. And I think they'd been there a while because they were not fresh, put it that way. So we kind of had this bucket of rat soup. It was very unpleasant, this bucket of rat soup. And it was very unpleasant for my wife. It's very unpleasant for me. So of course. The point of the matter is, is somebody had to deal with the bucket of rat soup and nobody wanted to deal with the bucket of rat soup, but the fact is it had to be done. So my wife and I decided it was a disgusting thing, but we would go down together for moral support and deal with the bucket of rat soup. So we did. Now, the example of that is, do we need to do any preparation to become the people that could do the disgusting thing of dealing with the bucket of rat soup, or did we just handle it when it needed handling? The reality here is we handled it when it needed handling, but I would say this, I think both of us have done enough self-development to be able to be the people that could handle it when it needed handling. And this is a metaphor to bucket of rat soup, right? But you know, another person might freak out. They might decide to live into a limitation of like, that's disgusting. I can't do that. Or that just makes me feel sick, right? My daughters are like that because we joke with my daughter and saying like, if you want to have that party this weekend, that's absolutely fine, but you have to deal with the bucket of rat soup first. It was a joke, but we just wanted to see her reaction. And of course there was no way she was going to deal with that bucket of rat soup. And she started living into her limitation. Oh, I can't do that. It's disgusting. It makes me feel sick. Right? This isn't a critique, by the way, my daughter's 17. I was very much like that at 17, right? We can be victims to what we think are our tendencies, our proclivities, our personalities, the realities of our internal reactions. We can be victims to those things and we can end up living into them. And sometimes living into them gets us rescued. Okay. So in a sense, both my wife and I are older. We've done a lot of self-development stuff. We know that it doesn't serve us to choose to be victims of proclivities that might come up within us. It serves us better to be aligned with who we choose to be in the world. And both of us choose to be people that deal with stuff when it comes up in spite of perhaps our inner proclivities. Now, the interesting thing is that creates a sort of weird situation because there's a payoff in that. For me, there's a small payoff in knowing I did something I needed to do that was unpleasant and disgusting or whatever, right? I get an upside to that. It's not just like, it was disgusting. It was horrible. I hope I never have to do that again. It's like, that was disgusting. That was horrible. And I slash we did what needed to be done. So there's a payoff at the level of identity, at the level of self-concept. Now, did we prep or didn't we prep? I don't know. 
Maybe yes, maybe no, maybe, maybe. However, I would say that there is value to not necessarily preparing, but there's value to transforming, to growing, but not so much if you're putting life on hold to do it, right? So I want to look at this distinction here, preparing versus living. I think that we can live directionally. We can live into the world as it is, but also with a sense of direction around who we are choosing to become. This is different from prepping. This is different from uh, going into some kind of sense that we need to ready ourselves so that we can get through something, right? And then we're not living in the world anymore. We're just living in reaction to a sense of threat, to a sense of danger. To me, this is not a good thing. This is not a healthy thing. We could postpone our life preparing for something that may never come. That's not good. What I would advocate is that we find intentionality and directionality in our own lives and how we're creating ourselves, and that we live into the creation of those transformations whilst we live into life at the moment, right? So live fully into life and create with what is, not with what you think might be coming down the pipe. That would be my advocation here. And by the way, I just say this, I've got these Taoist influences all the way back to my early 20s. So I have a tendency to see the world as a dynamic unfolding and that you can't control that unfolding. You have to just move with it, dance with it, create with it. You can steer that unfolding, the flow of that unfolding a little if you're artful, but you don't get to control it. But if you stop and you lock up and you freeze and you stop dancing with reality as it unfolds, the world leaves you behind right? Or it sweeps you away. So for optimism, is the world changing? Is the world ending, right? How are we going to meet that? I'm just going to talk about the end of the world. Peter Zion, his book, The End of the World is Just the Beginning. I'm a fan of esoteric philosophy. And when I was a boy, I was very much into comic books. I used to get the comic book 2000 AD would come out every week in the UK. And it's such an interesting thing, 2000 AD, when I used to read that in the 80s, that seemed like so far in the future. It's a futuristic comic book called 2000 AD. Of course, here we are in 2023. I think 2000 AD still goes out, but how futuristic is it now? But um, one of the writers in 2000 AD was a guy called Alan Moore. And at the time, he was just writing on this kind of pulpy weekly publication, but he later went on to write some incredible graphic novels that went on to be made into movies and all sorts of things. He's a very interesting character. So he did V for Vendetta, for example, League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, uh, Watchmen. All of these are kind of Alan Moore classics. And he's a very interesting guy. He's very much into esoteric philosophy. He did a comic book series called Promethea as well, or a graphic novel series called Promethea. And I read this because I knew he'd woven into it a lot of his interest in esoteric philosophy. So I've read this for this reason. Now, Promethea. Promethea is basically a sort of mimetic entity, an egregore of sorts, if you like. This means a, a sort of thought form that manifests in people across the ages. And the premise of the book is that it manifests in this girl who lives at a certain point in the future. And... The aim of Prometheus is to bring about the end of the world. That's what this mimetic entity is about. It's been around for thousands of years, and there are various sort of secret societies that exist to stop Promethea bringing about the end of the world. Now, of course, there's spoilers in this, by the way, if you ever intend to read it. So spoiler alert. The play on this is like, of course, that seems like a good thing to stop somebody who's trying to bring about the end of the world. And when you look at this character of Promethea, obviously the girl who's taken over by the Promethea entity and sort of fuses with is innocent in that sense. They don't start out wanting to bring about the end of the world. It's not a malevolent evil act. It's unclear what the intentionality is behind this. But the aim there is to bring about the end of the world. So the graphic novel plays out with Promethea learning more and more about her power and her capabilities developing herself, studying, finding people to study with. So in a sense, there's this intentionality in self-development, but there's also the sense that she's being very much carried along by events. 
right? So a lot of the time we would think of these things as being mutually exclusive, where they're either like in control, the masters of our own destinies, or we're swept along by events. But the reality is in the world is mostly the two of these go together. We are taken along by events. Whether we like it or not, events happen, the unfolding unfolds. So we are going to get carried with that. Even when I say if we stop and we freeze and we stop moving with it, it moves on without us. It doesn't really. It just rips us along with it and sweeps us away. We lose our agency. So in Promethea, we've got this sense that events are unfolding, but she has choice in how she engages with that. And she chooses to engage in a developmental way, but she's living into it and she's moving with it. Now, the way this unfolds, the way this plays out, and there's the major spoiler coming here. So uh, shut your ears if you want to read Promethea. But the way this unfolds is ultimately she succeeds in bringing about the end of the world. It plays out. The prophecy is fulfilled. The end of the world happens. But it turns out it's not the end of the world. It's the end of existing structures of organization. It's the end of existing institutions. Right? It's the dissolution of what was. But human beings, animals, plants, stuff, whatever, life goes on. Life continues. And there's a whole baseline of new possibilities there inside of it, right? Now, it might, of course, be the case that that means new challenges open up for people to meet. People don't like that. They spend their life learning to meet a certain set of challenges. And then change happens and they've got new challenges. I'm a professional change work practitioner. I work with people making changes in their lives. I often point out, um, when you solve this problem, you will get, as a reward, new problems. Please be aware of that, okay? I.e., when you make this change, new challenges come your way. That always is the case, right? There is no end to quote-unquote problem solving. There's always stuff happening in the world. If you change yourself and your way of being in the world, you will be in the world in a different way, and you will meet different things as a result, new challenges. Okay, this is the way it goes. So change always means being able to meet new challenges. There is no final state of things where everything can settle down. And if there was, I would say that would probably be called death rather than life. So I'm going to close off here by sharing with you a distinction, which I've often found helpful. It is the distinction of adaptedness versus adaptiveness. Okay. So adaptedness, there's a D there in the middle, ED in the middle. Versus adaptiveness, there's a T-I-V in the middle. Now, the way that most of us have been raised, at least most people my age and, and a bit older, is on an adaptedness model. That our goal as we learn and grow is to become adapted to a certain sort of world, adapted to a world of work, maybe, you know, the nine to five, whatever it will be adapted to having a career path. We get a particular set of skills that we're going to apply professionally throughout our lives, particularly going back, you know, my father's generation, you get into a job, you get into a job for life. My father was an engineer. He was in engineering for most of his career. Actually, he changed career when he was in his thirties, but the second part of his career, he was in engineering, right? So he could become adapted to engineering environments and develop a very specific set of skills that work very, very well in that environment. Okay. So adaptedness enables us to fit a set of conditions and adaptedness is a good way of living. If we know that set of conditions that we've adapted ourselves to is going to continue. Of course, when it doesn't, we hit problems. One of the things that I do is I work once a week for Rock to Recovery UK, working with UK military veterans, armed forces veterans who are transitioning out of the armed forces and into life or have transitioned. Some of them have left the armed forces many, many years ago, and they're still having difficulty with the new world that they've entered because it's very different. They became adapted to the armed forces, and that's a very specific world and a very specific set of contexts. 
and they're not necessarily readapting well to civilian life, right? So I do a lot of work with people there. Also, a lot of them have diagnosis of PTSD, PTSD symptomology. I often point out that's an adaptation. That's not a trauma. It's an adaptation, right? If people become adapted to high stress situations, high stakes situations, they become adapted to that. And then they don't readapt to taking their kids out on a Sunday morning to McDonald's. There's a problem there, right? There's a problem of a lack of adaptiveness. They need to further adapt. So adaptation, adaptiveness, we see it. We see the upside. Somebody can become excellent within a context, but when that context changes, they have a problem. Now, we're seeing a lot of this in the world right now. You know, I'm aware as I use mid-journey, I'm not personally using mid-journey to replace graphic artists, but I did read an article by a fantasy artist who's a commissioned artist. So they're more of a craftsperson, a Polish guy. He does stuff for Dungeons and Dragons, this kind of thing. So he's had a good source of work come in. But his name is the number one prompt on mid-journey, right? So his art style is emulated more than anyone else's. Somebody can put his name in and mid-journey will create works of art in his style. And he's saying, is anyone going to commission me anymore? Well, he spent a lifetime building a set of skills, adapting to, he has adaptedness to a particular context. It may be, and I hope it's not. And I hope there's some regulation that comes in around this, but you know, who knows? Um, I think there should be regulation that stops the use of people's names being used to create style prompts in both Midjourney and ChatGPT, right? It all seems innocuous to say, please write this article in the style of David Goggins or in the style of uh, Richard Wiseman or something like that. But like, that's that person's style that's been modeled, it's being taken. Is that, is that good? I don't know. There's questions there, but that's a point aside. Right, the point of the matter is, is that artist put his life into developing a skill set. And if he's developing it so as he can live and create an income and then the context changes, he has a problem, right? That can put people in a really difficult situation. And this is one of the things that I see working with the military vets. One of the big challenges is not just a lack of adaptation in a functional sense to a new life, but it's a loss of a sense of direction and purpose and meaning. Okay, because a lot of the people I work with there have got medical discharges. They didn't leave because they chose to. So that's something that can be a challenge if we live too much in orientation to adaptedness, right? Adaptedness also assumes there's an endpoint in the journey. We can work hard to become a good fit for a good context. We hit that endpoint. Everything is supposed to be good going forward. We've paid our dues. Now we get our rewards. And then the whole playing field changes. Now, there is a quality that we all possess as human beings that enables us to become adapted. We can only become adapted because we are adaptive. We have the ability to adapt. Now, we see this mostly with children. And people often say, you know, children learn much faster than adults. My argument for why children learn much faster than adults is because they have to. They need to. They have a greater need. And I've mentioned this in previous episodes. Kids come into the world. They don't know anything. They have no worldview. They have no set of sense made about the world that enables them to navigate the world or have power in the world. So they have a high degree of motivation for putting that map in place, right? So they learn things about the world. They piece it together and they develop certain skill sets as they go. Now, by the time they reach adulthood, their adaptiveness tends to drop because it, it hasn't got the same need to be present. The adaptive intelligence within them that shaped all of their behaviors, all of their understandings, it can kind of get lazy because it's got most stuff in place. The impetus isn't there anymore. They can feel that they have become adapted. And even if they think that they are maladapted, as I did when I was in my late teens and early 20s, I thought I'm maladapted. I'm not a good fit for the world. But, you know, hey-ho, this is who I am. That's what I believed at the time. I didn't know I could transform myself, right? But that adaptiveness, that ability to be adaptive, it doesn't go away. We can switch it back on. We can switch it back up when we choose to, especially when we choose to value it. And part of doing this is letting go 
of any disappointment, upset, or whatever, that the world may have changed or things may have changed or that the, our adaptation thus far might not be as fully fit for the purposes we would choose it to fit. Right? So I'm a big believer in adaptiveness, switching back into adaptiveness. And part of being adaptive is being willing to let go. So as I was learning Taoist martial art, there's an idea in Tai Chi Chuan or in the teachings of Tai Chi Chuan, as I was taught, that in order to profit, you must invest in loss. What does this mean? It means not holding on too tightly to anything. If you hold on too tightly to something that's disappearing from the world, you have a problem, right? You will not profit because you're not investing in loss. If you hold on to something that's keeping you stuck as the world moves on, it's not a good thing. It's not good for adaptiveness. So I always encourage people. One of the things I do when I'm coaching people, what I call my inspiration clients, more so than my desperation clients, is to choose to value adaptiveness, to start to learn to be adaptive. In my teaching of hypnosis, my hypnosis without trance approach to hypnosis, the whole aim there is that you're co-creating with another person hypnotic experiences. If you are too attached to very specific outcomes, you cannot be flexible and adaptive enough to co-create with that person an outcome that both of you are going to agree is a good outcome. Right? It might not look exactly like you would have planned, but no act of creation ever does. When we create, we might start with an intention. We might start with a sense of direction, with an inspiration, with an idea of possibility, some sense of something that you wish to realize. And there may be some specificities, but if those specificities are held onto too tightly, there cannot be a creative process, right? I've talked about this elsewhere, not necessarily in the Agents of Everything podcast, creativity versus productivity. Productivity aims for something very specific, has a tight grip on process, and success or failure is, did I deliver that thing? Creativity engages with the unfolding and allows for surprises, right? Things that nobody saw coming. It's a different kind of generativity, productivity versus generativity. Okay. So I advocate that people become adaptive. They live in the world in an alive, creative way. They learn to dance results out of reality. And if a person shifts to this place, they can start to relish change. Going back, I said right at the beginning, nothing is permanent but change. Heraclitus, pre-Socratic philosopher. If this is so, then we want to be able to move with change, change with change, dance with change, create with change. This is what I would advocate. I would advocate holding this as a high value. This is what's going to serve people as the world changes, right? So one of the big influences on me is NLP. And one of the presuppositions of NLP is the element within the system with the greatest degree of flexibility becomes the governing element within the system. Right. This is from cybernetics. So it's one of the laws of cybernetics, which is slightly different. The element within the system that can handle the largest degree of perturbations, I think, that is more able to handle difference and change. So we need a loose grip. We need to be able to move. We need to be able to flow. If we're rigidly attached to things being a certain way, we're addicted to the idea of safety. We're very safety driven. Anyone who's into spiral dynamics might think of blue v meme here not a lot of flexibility in that it's like a holding on we must follow the rules we must keep everything ordered right we're entering times where that is not going to serve us we need instead to be able to dance to be able to flow to be able to create right and the more we can value this and enjoy this and see this as actually being my bias would say the very essence of life Life moves, life flows, life grows. It doesn't stick and stop and get stuck, right? That's the antithesis of life. It's weird. There's a weird paradox that people seem to seek this end point, this point where they can settle. Everything is in equilibrium. Everything is safe, right? But there's an argument to be made. We could say that's the equivalent to death anyway, when everything stops. So I wanted to talk about Doomer optimism and saying, you know, you don't have to be optimistic about change, right? 
It's not about optimistic. If you're optimistic, you're living in hope. And as an old mentor of mine used to say, hope is not a strategy, right? Better to live in your power to be alive, to dance, to create, to adapt, to live as a creative force in the world. And the world is alive. And so therefore it does change. It will change. It can only change because nothing is permanent but change. We are all going to be looking back at this era in our lives. I suspect in 10, 20 years time, whatever, going, wow, things have changed a lot. Things are changing and we can be changing. We can live into that. We don't need to prepare for it. We can live into the change as it happens, as it unfolds, be alive, be light in our feet, dance, create, and live a good life as a result right now, not in the future, but right now. Okay. So I'm going to wrap this now. This is Agents of Everything. If you're new to Agents of Everything, you've got some value from this, please do subscribe on Substack to Agents of Everything. You can engage there in a bit more conversation through the comments. You can steer the direction of the podcast, ask the questions you want to ask. If you've got value from this, please do review it on whatever platform you listen to. Share it with any friends who might get value from it. And then they too can contribute to the direction that it unfolds in the future. Okay, till we next connect, keep on creating, keep on dancing.